One of my favorite things to do is to see people on Twitter who don't like us, and then I contact them. What's interesting is the debate and engaging with people who not necessarily love you, but engaging with the people who don't. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Anne Wojcicki. Anne is the founder of 23andMe, a game-changing at-home genetics testing kit. 23andMe is now a public company, but it wasn't an easy path to get there. Selling medical testing straight to consumers rather than to hospitals or pharma companies was part of 23andMe's uphill battle. Still, Anne turned 23andMe into a company worth $3.5 billion. On top of that, she's continued to advocate for women in business throughout her career. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're excited to have you. We like to do kind of a warm-up session to get to know you better. So we're going to do a lightning round, quick questions, quick answers. Ready? Yeah. Love it. First job on your resume? Investor AB, the Wallenberg family in Sweden. What was that like your first job period that may not have been on your resume? I was a server at Hobie's. They're famous for their coffee cake. Do you have any hobbies? Ice skating. Are you good? It depends who you ask. I used to skate in the mornings in New York City at Woolman Rink, and it was like a group of older ladies that were learning to skate, and they thought I was amazing. Okay, well, that counts for a lot. I gravitated towards that kind of crowd. One word a direct report would use to describe you? Unconventional? I don't know. We haven't gotten that answer before. It is an unconventional answer. I like it. One of my direct reports, who's always like, I've never seen someone change so many dirty diapers during a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Finish the sentence. What best describes your work day working nine till blank? Oh, I would say work is seamlessly integrated throughout my day. What's the last show you binge watch? Peppa Pig. (laughs) Actually, my mom and I have really enjoyed. I think Peppa Pig is like... It's better than The Simpsons. So that was your pick. There are some brilliant episodes that really do mock parenting, which I really appreciated. The last one though that was like an adult show was Unorthodox. It was very good. Biggest guilty pleasure. I mean, I eat a lot of chocolate. How do you relax or unplug? I exercise a lot, mostly because I used to bike every day to and from work. And that was amazing because... It forced me to unplug. It's hard to do your phone and ride the bike at the same time. Although I have figured out how to do it. But I, after flipping the bike once, I decided it was no longer wise. That happened to a skim employee who also liked biking and being on his phone at the same time. It's bad because you you squeeze your brakes with one hand. So you flip it. So I flipped it once actually when I was pregnant. And I was like, all right, I really have to manage myself better. Anyways, I think the other thing I, I have to say, I just love actual yoga classes. I've been really impressed with my Peloton yoga class. I like them too. My sister got me into the Grateful Dead yoga Peloton classes. I just think like you need to find things that really force you to put the phone down. I miss biking. 
Final lightning round question. When did you feel like you made it? Oh, I still feel like I'm working on it. So you've mentioned your mom and your sister. And from doing some background research, it sounds like your parents had some super high expectations for you and and your sisters growing up from what sports you played as a kid to what career path you chose. What was it like growing up in your house? You know, it's interesting. I don't think my parents had necessarily expectations for us. My parents gave us a lot of independence and my parents are just naturally super curious individuals on their own. And actually I'm very grateful. Like I grew up on Stanford campus and I was surrounded by very eccentric people who want to challenge gravity and redefine whole political infrastructures. Like everyone on my street was just super interesting and unusual. And I think that kind of empowered all of us to be more eccentric. Like it's okay to be sort of unusual and also to pursue what you're interested in. I absolutely loved it. Like the academic lifestyle, like every 10 years, you're kind of pursuing something new is, is amazing. It just opens up this idea, like you can do anything. So it wasn't stressful. Like my parents wanted us to do well, but there was a ton of independence. Like I think back on childhood. I had to make most of my dinners. Both my parents also were busy on their own. I do think that it's great for parents to work and have their own life because it kind of forces you as a kid to step it up. Yeah, I still give my parents grief about having to make my own breakfast before school. And they're like, yeah. I mean, honestly, my mom used to buy frozen bran muffins in bulk at Costco and freeze them. And literally she would like throw it in the car on the way out. Whoa, here's your muffin. And that was... There's something about being super independent and having to do things on your own. It's very important for me to my kids to do that. And it's a struggle because we have more help now. But I think that my parents expected us to be good people and to be honest and to pursue passions. But I never felt like you have to go and succeed and this and that. So one of your passions growing up, and this came up in the the lightning round interview, and I think you kind of underplayed how good you are, but you were a figure skater from like an early age and got into it. How did you keep up those lessons? Oh, yeah. So this is the, the type of example. My parents hated my ice skating. They didn't want to pay for lessons. I was kind of famous for always sneaking into the rink because I didn't have the entrance fee. And so I used to also, to buy my ice skates, I used to try to win the skate-a-thon every year because the top prize was a new pair of skates. So my parents, my parents used to always tell me like, what sport do you want to do, tennis or ice skating? And I would say ice skating. And they're like, well, you still have tennis lessons on Thursdays. And it's like, they really wanted me to play tennis more. I had a phenomenal coach who like allowed me to babysit sometimes in exchange for lessons. And I figured out how to get my skates. And like I said, I snuck into the rink a lot. And I feel like I always owe them. I try to support them and donate to them because they didn't kick me out. But, you know, I think that there's something about opposition like as a rebellious teenager, like parents should in some ways encourage their kids to rebel a bit and forces their passion. But I, I loved ice skating. I always really loved it. And, you know, I wasn't, didn't want to compete in it, but I really loved it as a sport. And in some ways, my parents' lack of appreciation for it drew, forced a lot of independence for me. Are you going to replay this for your kids when they get into that stage? I try to encourage them to 
rebel. I mean, again, because I'm close to both my sisters. And so I see all the cousins. Like, I'm just so proud of them for when they do rebel. Like, they're, they are independent. There's nothing more amazing than watching a child grow up and then have opinions and do interesting things. I just think it's amazing. And what's great is like every single person has preferences. Like everyone has opinions and passions and they just need that opportunity to figure them out. Let's segue into a huge interest of yours. What first drew you to genetics? Walk us through how 23andMe first came to be. I have this story where my sister and my mom were talking about genes. And I remember being confused because she was wearing shorts. And I remember I kept asking my mom, like, but what are jeans? What are jeans? And then I was like worried. I was like, maybe it's something bad that I don't want to know about. And I remember my mom talking about DNA and getting into the gene and environment interaction. And I was obsessed. It like captivated me in a way that I just I remember thinking, it was like, you're born with a code? And then potentially like you can mitigate your risk, like you can be at risk for something, but then it's not deterministic and I can influence my actions. So I was always super interested in like, well, what is it that you can do? And that's how I got interested. Like I wrote this report in fourth grade all about junk food and I got interested in acupuncture and like in herbal medicine. Like I got interested in all these other areas because I was like this interplay. So interesting. So I always loved it. And so I feel incredibly lucky that during my first job at the Wallenbergs that I got to studying the companies that were working on the human genome. And I had taken a class about the sequencing of the human genome and was always super like interested in it. And I love science, but I'm not the best like day in, day out lab scientist. And my former lab mates would probably laugh at those comments. I, I was a lot of fun in the lab, but I wasn't necessarily great with the detail. But <laughs> That seems to be important, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, I was like, three seconds, five seconds, doesn't matter. But I, I just loved it. I love molecular biology. I just think it's the fact that you have all of these systems happening in your body. And I remember one night trying to like, I'm going to understand the complement system and I'm going to try to map it all out. And I just like, I love it. I think it's so fascinating how complex your body is and all of the communication, the cross-communication that happens. So I was really lucky to be investing in a time period where all of this genetic discovery was happening. And at the same time, you couldn't avoid what was happening in Silicon Valley, even though I wasn't living there and seeing Google rise and web 2.0 world and this whole idea. I remember when Flickr came out and it's like, wow, you're people and you're going to interact and you're going to share. There was an incredible you know, sort of vision of like, you have this opportunity to potentially really change healthcare, like really understand what the human genome is. And again, tapping into all the web 2.0 ideas, like how do you actually crowdsource knowledge on health and research? And if your human genome is suddenly potentially accessible and you see this passion, all these people want to participate in Susan G. Komen walks and fundraises for bone marrow transplants and everyone wants to help each other in health. And I kept thinking, I was like, this is not a project for Stanford or Harvard or NIH even like this is like tap into humanity. We all suffer from a lack of understanding in our health and we're all naturally looking for it. Like when you find somebody else who's like, oh, your kid has celiac as well. Let's chat about it. Or like everyone wants to talk about their pregnancies or cancer patients want to bond with each other. Like 
there's this natural desire to connect. And 23andMe was really then about like, how do I actually add real structure to that social drive for people to come together? So your genetics is the structure, the self-reported data is the structure, but then how do we actually empower everyone to learn about themselves, but then have this incredible research engine so that we can start to understand like really what does the human genome mean? When I hear you talk about this, and now actually having 23andMe be out there and it has changed the lives of so many people. And I think hearing you talk about how those three things you were looking at at the beginning, where did you start? Like it feels like such almost an overwhelming amount of information to wrap your head around in thinking about it's a huge problem, which is exciting, but like, how did you know where to dive in? I mean, this is where I'm lucky. I had co-founders, Linda and Paul, who shared a very similar passion. Like Linda was really focused. Like when I met them, they were like, we want to start a company helping people get their genetic information. And they really were pushing on the ancestry side, like all these opportunities. And part of it that I brought to it was like, there's this awesome opportunity to crowdsource and get the research. And I have this passion as well for the therapeutic side, because I feel like drug discovery is notoriously difficult and hard and always fails. And so like, how can you also then transform drug discovery? So I got lucky in some ways, finding people who are already moving on this area, who are really passionate. And I think that's when I look at some of the success of these startup groups like Y Combinator, I think there's a huge success that comes because having a team that helps you figure out all those points is great. Like there's a lot more support these days now for like, how do you be a startup? And so the very first problem is like, how do you get the kits? How do you spit? Let's have a lab run us. And you start building prototypes. And we got lucky again that Stanford has a great genetics team. And we were able to hire two postdocs, essentially, who were the scientific co-founders who were incredible. And like we did all that early prototyping of what does it look like? What can you see in your genome? And we built this thing called the genome browser. And, you know, it was like amazing to be able to look at a paper and then just type it in and see what do I have? Those first moments of like, wow. Were you freaked out in the beginning, like on, on how much you could actually learn about yourself? Yeah. When I did it, I was really freaked out. Like the earwax thing. I was like, how do you know that? Yeah, I think there was something really amazing about those earliest moments where you're like, holy cow, this works. Like I can get your DNA from saliva. I can look at it and I can know things about you. And granted, like as much as it was like so obvious to see it from a consumer perspective, it was amazing. And I think there's aspects like your ancestry, knowing like I'm half Jewish and that's very clear in my DNA. And we hear that from people all the time, like where they know some parts about their ancestry and it matches or then when there's like surprises. I think along the way, I mean, that's what's kept me doing this for 15 years. Honestly, it's every single day is interesting. We're almost going through a time period of the great reveal where all these people for the first time ever are seeing their DNA and there's all kinds of interesting secrets or mysteries that are being discovered. And theoretically, once I have that knowledge and I pass it down to my children, like they'll know it won't be as much of a surprise, but like this is the generation that has the great reveal. 
And yet, when you were first launching, it wasn't necessarily a given that consumers were going to be totally up for this. How did you think about marketing to people at home? Well, that's a funny question. I think that we were a team of, if we were heavy on the science, and I would say that just I had the biotech investing side, but not necessarily a marketing side. And Linda and Paul as well didn't have, they had the science side. Marketing was not our strength. Like we didn't do any market research studies. We just assumed we're like, of course, everybody wants their genome. And after our initial launch, which got a ton of publicity, we had no sales. And I think like every journey is hard. Like you get very few stories that are like Instagram where you, you know, have 10 people, you know, it was hard. Like we built this company, supply chains are really hard to manage. Nobody but us really saw that there was like a need or desire to look at your genetics. Like what was the value proposition? And that took a lot of time. And we also realized people are not jumping up and down to go and find out if they have a risk factor for a disease. Right. I was freaked out to do it. And ultimately, it wasn't until I thought about having kids that I wanted to know more. But it is scary. And every time I get kind of like a push notification with the app on, can I look at this? Or, you know, now I can know this. Each time I'm a little nervous. Like, do I want to know that? Yeah. The beauty for me of genetics is the environmental component. The fact that very few aspects of genetics are deterministic. So you can impact everything with your environment. So I like knowing what I'm at risk for. So it helps me know what to look for, how to be proactive with my health. I dream about a day when U.S. Prevention Task Force guidelines are dynamic for everybody, where they say not all 50-year-olds are the same. How do you start to understand who really needs what kinds of testing? And having worked in healthcare, I love the molecular biology, but like fundamentally what really inspires me is the people and the response. And so it's part of what I have found is like anything that you can do that helps people have a healthier lifestyle or do more, like it's inspiring. So I get excited every time I have a new report, I look at like me and all my children. I'm like, Ooh, I should start thinking about doing that instead. Sunglasses for everybody. (laughs) So going back over time, you get a good foundation. You start kind of figuring out how you're marketing towards people at home, business is doing well, and then the FDA comes along and, and shuts down the, the primary function for, for a bit. As a growing business and as a leader, I mean, how do you handle that from a morale perspective, from a credibility perspective? You know, with the FDA stuff, I think, that, I think about it all the time because it had such a huge impact on the company. You know, and it's funny, like the night before we got our FDA warning letter, I was actually speaking at like a regulatory meeting and they were all like almost egging me on. Like, what are you going to do next? Like, we're so excited. Like what's 23Me's next big move? And we were total pioneers in that way. And the FDA stuff, it was a total pivot for us because we had to go back and rebuild the entire product. And there's a lot of things that were an amazing process. Like it definitely has made us a much stronger company and a much stronger product. But like those days were super hard. I had no head of regulatory. My head of communications left pretty quickly. Like it was hard. And I think that fundamentally what saved the company was, you know, what I say is one of our core values, which is we lead with science. And 
there was no doubt. Like when I would talk to even people at the FDA or others, like we were always had scientific integrity. Like we had a ton of publications. We tried to document and show how we were doing everything. We worked with ethicists. We have an incredible scientific team. And everyone believed that what we were doing was right and the results that we had returned were right. But that the process of how we'd gotten there was not appropriate. And it wasn't for a lack of trying to work with the FDA. It was really miscommunication, like largely like we did not speak FDA speak. And it was just, again, total miscommunications. So keeping morale, like I think that people stayed at the company because there was some, there was that belief, like now we're fighting an even bigger fight. And we believe in the science that we do. We stand by it and we're going to prove it to you now that it was right. And I think one thing that scientists like is scientists like data. And so we're good at generating data. And so we're like, you tell us what we need to do and we're going to go and do it. And it was a huge hole that we were in. And I think that, again, because we have that core value, we lead with science. And I do think that people have also that rebellious spirit of like, I'm fighting for the right of the consumer. And fundamentally, but I think one of the biggest impacts we've had is the right for an individual to get access to information about themselves that is not predicated on a one-to-one interaction with a physician or a healthcare provider. Everything that we think about from healthcare, healthcare can never scale if it's all dependent upon a one-to-one interaction with a physician. And at the same time, as a consumer who has seen the value of not having to wait for that one-to-one doctor relationship, how freaked out should people be about their privacy. How do you manage that? Kind of the vision that you have, how it is so important to scale, and also the very real fears of this is information that I am freely giving, getting something back, but you know, not something that I necessarily would want many people to have. I love the privacy discussion because I am relatively fanatical about independence and choice. And frankly, there's nothing worse that can happen to me is like not having transparency about what is happening with my information. I like to be in charge. And we spent a lot of time thinking about privacy. And one of the earliest experts that we engaged with, he was so helpful. And like, I remember him saying all the different ways like he was not going to do the product. But he was like, people don't understand privacy. He's like, privacy doesn't mean I don't want you to do anything with it. Privacy means I want to have choice. I want you to be transparent. And that was like really life-changing. I think that in some ways, what the healthcare world does is an insult to my privacy. Like HIPAA in lots of ways makes it really hard to share any information. And I find that insulting and frankly, harmful to me. All kinds of ways where I can't get access to information because it's not being shared under the false pretense of my privacy. So like an example of that is that it's so hard to get your own medical records, to take them to someone else, to get another opinion. I mean, that's just a like one example that I always get mad at where I'm like, why am I paying for a copy of my own medical records so that I can go walk it over 
to someone else to to look at. Absolutely. Right. It's just, uh, I, I have so many examples of it where I think that it has been harmful to individuals and there's no consent option. There's no option to say, I want all of these people to have it, or I want to be able to easily push it in one way or another. Anyways, I could go on this tirade for a really long time. And I think that, again, a lot of these issues have come with the fact that a lot of healthcare systems want to own data and not share it. And so I feel incredibly strongly about the need for me to be in control and for those privacy controls. So 23Me is entirely built upon a system that is about choice and transparency and about helping our customers opt in and being clear when you have opted in. So for example, if you decide to opt into research, it says at the top when you're answering questions, you are opted into research. When we did our large collaboration with GSK on therapeutic development, we sent all of our customers an email that said, we've done this collaboration. We are super excited about making discoveries. If you want to participate, click here. If you do not want to participate, click here. And what I have found is that most people want to participate in research. They just want choice. Like you look at things like the Henrietta Lacks story, and I've spent a lot of time, again, also in hospitals and with patients. And when people are really sick, they want to see a difference. They just don't want to feel taken advantage of. And that's, to me, the biggest issue. And I know the word human subject is like a legal word. It's important in all kinds of ways. But like, I want to be a partner to research. I want to know, like, I'm contributing my data and I want to see it move forward. And I, again, I can't tell you how I rate I get at all the various studies where we'll try to collaborate and they're like, no, we're not consented for sharing in this way or that way. And I just think back and like, is that really what the patient wanted? Like, I remember we had this one meeting, we had a early sarcoma community where we were doing research on sarcoma. And I remember one of the women, I asked her, you want us to consent you for every study that we do? And she looks at me, she's like, Anne, I'm going to be dead in 12 months. Like you have to either have an impact that's going to have an impact on me or my children, but like, I'm trusting you to do something. And that frankly is like, again, one of the leading values that we have for our therapeutics team is like that urgency every day matters in the back of my mind. Everything that I'm always doing is with that human in mind. You mentioned a few times, one of the company's core values of leading with science and the example from the FDA of, of you guys having to, in effect, build twice. Given how much attention and obviously very different company, and I'm not comparing it, but when you think about leading consumer healthcare startups, clearly Theranos is part of the picture. Do you think that there should be more oversight when it comes to consumer healthcare startups? It's an interesting story here because 23andMe is one of the few companies that's regulated by the FDA. And most companies, there's lots and lots of other consumer initiated, they call it consumer initiated companies. And they go through this loophole, which is where you have a physician that's online that has the ability to order. And it's just, it doesn't have the same set of standards as the FDA. And there's good and bad of it. Like it's called the laboratory developed test pathway. There's good and bad aspects of it. You know, in my mind, I'm always thinking about how can you actually harmonize between the FDA world that we went through and the LDT world? And should there be, you know, a greater overlap between the two of them? And probably, but 
you know, it's complicated and you have slip ups like Theranos obviously was a massive one that was able to actually come out in all kinds of ways and did not necessarily have the science behind it. So part of what we have always been really clear about is being transparent. Like we always have white papers, we always publish, we invite that criticism. Like one of my favorite things to do is to see people on Twitter who don't like us and then I contact them. And like, I love it. What do you say? I say, I was like, I'd love to hear about your opinions. Like, I just want to know. Wait, are these people that are like trolling you or like reporters? No, people who will say, you know, it was like one of the things that we did early on in the FDA is like, I had one consultant who wrote me a letter saying, essentially, you're the bottom of the barrel. Like nothing would ever inspire me to work with you. And I was like, oh, you know, I think we have a misunderstanding. It'd be great to chat. And You know, there was a genetic counselor recently who also was just very negative. And I like hearing that's how you grow as a person. That's also like going back to my academic roots. Like what's interesting is the debate and engaging with people who not necessarily love you, but engaging with the people who don't. And what am I missing? What can I learn? And, you know, I think that's where like it's that's also how we make progress. Like we routinely when try to win people over there's lots of like well established academics who really did not like us in those early days but like by reaching out to them and engaging in dialogue we've been able to win them over okay i've got a listener question from madison how do you think the tech world has changed for women over the past 10 years i love the community i mean i do think that there's all kinds of issues but i think it's gotten better and i think that now like i feel like i have a pretty robust community of women vcs women entrepreneurs women in tech so you know it's one thing just to remind people like when i first started investing they didn't want me to wear pants and i tell people at the company like when we started 23andme gay marriage was illegal so the world can change And it's good to just remember that like change doesn't happen overnight, but the world can totally change. So I do think that like it's changed a lot since I started, like when I started, it was very heavy male, but the world is changing. And the way it changes also is you lead by example. And it was one of the best things about my mom. Like my mom is just one of those people who always kind of taught us that laws are meant to change just because something's a law today doesn't mean it should be. And so like, your responsibility then is to like push forward and drive those changes. So it's gotten better. And I do appreciate having the female peers. Last question on the note of female peers, who's someone else we should have on this show? Oh, I mean, there's just so many interesting people. I mean, one, there's obviously my sister who I love. Who we have not had on the show yet. And maybe we we would have to like do some some sibling questions in the lightning round. That would be fun. And thank you so much for being on the show. We will take any and all intros that you're willing to make. And thank you for everything you've done. And so nice speaking with you. So nice to speak with you. So fun. I love the skin. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with The Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday.